Um, my name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, it truly is my privilege to be speaking just a week before Christmas Eve, which is indeed crazy. Um, so we've been observing this season of Advent, and what we've said about Advent throughout this series is maybe a little surprising, um, maybe not as much if you've been around our church for any number of years, but what we've been saying is that Advent, unlike what the Christmas season is in our culture, which is a time of, of lights and of cheer and of happiness and of sort of giddy anticipation, that Advent in the life of the church is meant to be a season of um, sort of sober reflection, of, um, of really embracing the fact that, that we live by and large in, in a very dark world. Now, <laughs> that's not exactly the, the cheeriest thing, and I'm not trying to be, you know, Scrooge or anything, but that's what, that's what throughout centuries, Advent, and by, that wor- by the way, that, that word is just a Latin word that basically means um, that something is coming, that there's an arrival. Uh, and so what Christian, the reason why Christians have, have had this little bit more of sort of a minor key rather than a major key, if you're a music person about Advent, is because we want to take seriously that when Jesus comes, his coming is absolutely necessary. I have a friend who says that Advent is meant to push back the sentimentality that characterizes so much of, uh, of American Christmassy culture. And by sentimentality, that, this friend is not using that uh, positively. <laughs> sentimentality, in fact, I think it was, uh, if you know Flannery O'Connor, she was this great sort of wild Southern novelist. Uh, she was a Catholic, and she wrote these, these wild books. And, and, um, and in all of them, there's, there's something very dramatic um, that, that turns the story on a dime, something um, very shocking that normally turns her stories on a dime. And she says that she, by and large, writes against sentimentality. And she actually wrote this about Advent, that, um, that Advent also she loves, particularly in the church calendar, because it pushes against sentimentality. Because what sentimentality is, is getting to the happy ending without counting the cost of what it took to get there. It's a desire for the happy ending without counting the cost of what it took to get there. And Advent says, let's not be people who say, hooray, Jesus came, without pausing long enough to say, why did he have to come? Because until we realize why he absolutely had to come, why it was our only hope, why it was plan A through Z for us, as, as humanity, until we really soberly look at that, um, we cheapen Christmas into something that it ought not be. We must, in other words, count the cost of what it took. We've been going through Isaiah because Isaiah is picked up a lot in, in the sort of classic Christmas story in the New Testament. But this passage in particular, hopefully you heard it as Alexa was reading, is where we got even the name of the series from, Comfort, Comfort. And so just really quickly on the book of Isaiah, we did a long series through Isaiah like seven years ago or something. But the simplest way to describe Isaiah is it's in two halves. 
Isaiah 1 through 39, and then the rest of the book, 40 through 66. And Isaiah 39, the first half of the book, closes with this sober reality that God's people, God's chosen and elect people, are about to be conquered by this foreign empire, namely first Assyria and then ultimately Babylon. And this seems like an inevitability because of God's people's continued rebellion against him. It's one of the darkest moments in the biblical story. So that's where the first half of the book closes. That there is a reality, that there is a point at which God hands us over to our sin and rebellion and says, I have warned you. I have told you this is not the way to live. I have tried to give you prophets and messages to speak to you and to say where you're going is not where I would want you to be. And it's a path to destruction. And then at some point in the biblical record, God hands us over to that. That's the literal language. It's not God uh, throws an angry thunderbolt from heaven. It's not God, his, his patience finally runs out or something. It's nothing limited in him. It is simply... As C.S. Lewis once said, ultimately, we will either say to God, your will be done, or God will eventually say to us, your will be done. God will hand us over to that choice to rebel against him. And so having warned them, the people do not turn back to him and now find themselves in captivity. And the very first thing that is spoken in Isaiah 40, I am telling you, could not be more shocking. It could not be more shocking. Everything that the first half of the book said would happen has now happened to God's people. And now God, for the first time in a couple hundred years, speaks. What would you expect him to say? In a moment where you are handed over to your worst sin and rebellion, where you are handed over and experiencing some of the worst suffering, and it's at your own hands, what would you expect God to say? What he says to his people is in fact so shocking that biblical scholars have tried to explain it away, <laughs> have said there's no way. There's no way that this is the first thing that God would say to his people when they've actually been handed over to the worst of what he's warned them against for centuries. And yet, such as it is, it's still right there in your Bible. The first words are, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, and if your Bible has a little a little number next to that word warfare, mine does. Uh, probably a better translation there is hardship, that her hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Comfort, comfort. That's God's first word to them. When they've been handed over to what he's warned them, they will end up in. He is not the parent who comes and says, I told you so. He is not the parent who comes and says, well, now you're in this mess. Good luck getting out of it. He comes and he speaks comfort over them. It's stunning. It's wild. It's Christmas though, y'all. 
Because until we understand how the only possible hope that the people had was that for reasons that are beyond them, because this whole passage begs, why? Why, God? Why comfort, comfort? Did the people suddenly turn? Did the people suddenly become something other than they had always been? God says, it is nothing about them. It is always about me and my grace and my mercy and my choice to pursue you when you have ceased pursuing me. That's the only reason why. It's because this is who God actually is. And he comes and he speaks comfort, comfort. These are, this is such a cool word, this, this word, this particular word, comfort. It's not so much a go and sympathize with my people. Go and say, oh man, this, this sounds really hard. It is far more a meeting someone in a moment of extreme danger, of extreme grief and loss, and giving them a word that allows them to move forward. I know that's a very long definition, but this isn't cold comfort. This isn't go hug my people. This is a biblical word that is used. For instance, here's, here's two uses of it that I think really stood out as, as I was looking at this word, how it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Mike, put up that first. There, there we go. Genesis 50. Um, I almost want to play Bible trivia and say, does anyone know what scene this comes from? So this is one, if you know the story of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph's brother, you don't have to know this story to, to get this, but for those of you who do, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He eventually ends up in Egypt. They go to Egypt because they're starving. Um, Joseph eventually reveals like, hey, I'm your brother that you threw into a pit and tried to kill. And this is, this is what happens after that. It says, uh, this is Joseph now talking to his brothers who now realize it's him and they're terrified for their lives. They're like, the whole kingdom is dying of starvation. What are the chances that our brother, who we sold in slavery, tried to kill, is actually going to take any kind of pity on us? It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring uh, it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Do you see how his comfort goes well beyond everything's fine? No, his comfort is an active kind of comfort that says, in spite of the fact that you are feeling like our very lives are at risk, in spite of the fact that you know that I have every reason to of all people say, no, you're going to go hungry. I'm actually going to embrace you. Maybe most uh, like famously or, or the one that, that might even come to mind for you is in Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Verse four says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, same word as in, as in Isaiah 40. They comfort me. And I love this. Notice where it comforts them, who, or the, the psalmist. It's in the valley of the shadow of death that this comfort comes. Notice what comforts the psalmist. It's actually surprising what comforts the psalmist. Because insofar as the Lord is our shepherd, what does that make us? Sheep. And a shepherd's rod and staff is normally used how on sheep? <laughs> to discipline, right? So what is this saying? This is saying, God, the fact that you care enough to stick close as my shepherd, even your discipline is something that gives me hope that you are near and with me in life's hardest circumstances. They, they comfort me. God shows up, Isaiah 40. Maybe with this very thing ringing in their ears, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though we're walking in the valley of shadow of death, he'll comfort us, he'll comfort us, he'll comfort us. Now he says, to the, likely this is God speaking to the prophet here, saying, this is, this is my word for the people now. And the prophet comes and says, I almost picture uh, uh, Isaiah going in front of the people and, and Isaiah's like, okay, this is not what I thought he was going to say. But here's what God told me to say. He said, comfort, comfort, that your hardship is, is over, that you've received double for your sin. You know what that means here? <laughs> what it sounds like, I think, to our ears, because we're so trained for judgment, is um, we've received double punishment for our sins. It's the opposite. So what does it mean to receive double for our sins? I think especially with those on the other side of the cross, there is a sense in which we always receive double for our sins from God. Because, here's the thing, not only do we receive forgiveness, bing, thing one, we, we have our sin actually dealt with, we receive double. We receive renewed relationship with him. We're welcomed back into the family. We're welcomed back into dialogue with him, right? It's always double. I could keep going. We could triple it. We could quadruple it. But what he's saying is, I'm not just going to do one thing on behalf of your sin. I'm going to take all of the effects and consequences of your sin. And it's all going to be dealt with. Not just forgiveness, but belonging and adoption. Not just cleansing, but a hope of a future. This is like really good news. <laughs> this is really good news. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Anybody know where this is picked up in the New Testament? There's someone whose lips this is on. Anybody know or who this is? Yeah, John the Baptist. Good. Right? This is John the Baptist. This is how Mark's gospel uh, actually starts is, is with this very passage. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become leveled, the rough places a plain glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, what's going on here? Why are mountains coming down and why are valleys going up? And what's this image, right? It's cool. It's very poetic, but what's actually being depicted here? What's being depicted here is, is the uh, particular place um, when it says uh, in the wilderness, that's a, that's a specific place. In fact, I, I have a picture of it. Mike, can you put that picture up of the... So this is the Jordan Rift Valley. Guys, I did my homework this week. A lot of pictures. Um, Jordan Rift Valley, this is what it looks like. And it's saying, what this is saying, the whole image here, when you hear, make a straight path, make a highway, what's being depicted here is a king's coming. A king is coming. This is what you did in the ancient world. If you were some little village in the ancient world and all of a sudden you heard the king, the emperor, the, the ruler of, of your people was going to make an appearance in your village, what you would do is you would build a highway to make sure that what welcomed them wasn't rocky ground where they would have to endure the indignity of like walking over your everyday path into town. And so you would the phrase that we would use, you would roll out the red carpet. You know that phrase, right? There's an ancient version of that where they would literally make a highway so that the king could come in. That's what's being depicted here. But, what's, but the image is elevated because it's not just make a highway. It's every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain made low, the uneven ground shall become level, rough places of plain. It's saying that this king is greater than any king. And his arrival will not just be greeted by a highway, it'll be greeted by the geological recomposition of this mess. 
That's how great he is. That's how worthy he is of being anticipated in his arrival. That's how much we need him to come to us. In other words, it's worth moving mountains to welcome him because of what he brings with him. So this is an image of his enormous power, but also of the enormous anticipation that he would come. And so when John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness and he says, make a way, make a way, he's coming. He's talking about this. He's saying what Isaiah longed for is actually happening in our midst. Verse six, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is contrasting God with humanity. We are here and we are gone. That is a really hard reality, but when you've been through real grief and loss, you get a little bit more of a taste of that, how truly fleeting life can be. Contrast that to an everlasting God. And it's saying, remember who you're dealing with. This is your only hope. If your only hope is in other people, right? This relationship is gonna bring me ultimate lasting satisfaction and salvation. If my boss will give me the promotion, if this inner group of people will actually accept me and think that I'm someone that they want to be around. When we put our ultimate hope in humanity, we are putting our ultimate hope in something as fleeting as grass, right? And the image here is, is it's grass. Look outside. What we all had to mow all summer down is not even growing. It's gone. It's dead. It no longer has any, any life to it. Why? Because the season changes, the grass can't handle it. That's humanity. We all, get, we all get maybe, you know, our four score at best or whatever, right? And then we're gone. If your hope is in human things and human made things, your hope by definition is fleeting. It's transient. It will never fully fulfill. If you were made for something more, Maybe I'll add that. If you, were made for some, if you were made for that, and that's all there is, is matter, time, space, then find your hope in matter, time, space. Make the most of your time. Get the most stuff that you can. Enjoy it as much as you can. But we have so many people who have gone and tried that. Guys, I just read this week, the situation from the Jersey Shore. He's a Christian. Now, that's crazy. What he said, don't act like you don't know who the situation is. Most of you know who the situation is, Right? And, and in this article in New Jersey Magazine, he talks about, he says, I literally feel like I got to experience everything that the world says would fulfill me. Parties and women and, and money and fame and all these things. And he said, and I reached a point where I said, oh no, this isn't doing it for me. Now he's like, now I live for Jesus in Homedale, New Jersey. It's like, yo, right? Like we have so many prophets who have pursued that ephemeral, fleeting, grass-like hope, and they say, it doesn't do it. And then we have prophets of God who speak the word of God, who say, yeah, that's because you were made for something more. You were made for something less. You're not less significant than that, which is where a lot of people end up. Well, then I guess life is meaningless, and my, my existence is insignificant. No, wrong way to turn in that moment. You were made for more. 
You are more significant than you know. This is what I love about this passage is it reminds us that God is always leveraging his enormous power and strength and unequaledness for our good. And it never doesn't surprise us because <laughs> we're so trained to expect worse from him. We're so trained to expect worse from him. This week, I, as I was going through this, I kept thinking of the very best Disney movie. And there's only one right answer to what the very best movie is. Do you know what it is? Moana? You think it's Moana? It's a very hot take, Moana. It does have that. It does have that really good. That'll preach. Moana preaches well. It's Lion King, obviously. Right? Pete, you're with me? Pete and Kimberly, thank you guys. Are you saying that for me? Is that some sort of judgy? Like, of course it would be for him, but okay. Um, okay, remember in The Lion King? Uh, Simba and Nala, they sneak off to the elephant graveyard, and they've been told not to go to the elephant graveyard. And then Simba's like, we should go to the water hole. And she's like, the water hole? What's so great about that water hole? And then they go to the elephant graveyard anyway. Remember this? And then the hyenas get them, and the hyenas go chasing them. And they chase them, and they end up like this. Mike, show the picture. Remember? They're terrified. It's copyrighted. Um, they're terrified. Okay, they've done the thing that Mufasa has warned them against. They're now in massive trouble, right? What happens? You know what happens literally two seconds later from this? You know what's happening? Simba's going, right? And the hyenas go, do it again, um, right? And then he goes, right? And, and their expression changes significant. Now Mufasa's shown up. Now, what does Mufasa do? Swipe away Simba Nala and say, I told you, you handle this yourself. Now, he leverages all of his strength and might in order to rescue them in spite of the fact that their peril, that their danger is the result of them, you have directly disobeyed me, right? Like <laughs> their direct disobedience of him. But he leverages, I love this movie, guys. Um, <laughs> he, he leverages all of his strength and might on behalf of their rebellion. That's crazy. Okay, now there's a moment after this all happens, right? After this all happens, the hyenas are, are pushed away. Now Simba's got to interact with his father. The danger's gone. What's going to happen? Well, that's later. That'll, that's a whole other sermon, Christy. I'll preach that someday. <laughs> But what happens, right, they, they have this interaction. Now, Simba knows that Mufasa is disappointed. Mufasa says the thing. He says, you directly disobeyed me, right? But then he says, I wrote it down. First of all, he says to the hyenas, which I love, he says, um, if you ever come near my son again, right? He threatens them. They're the danger, not Simba. They have this conversation. He says, look, it's really important that you obey me. I hope you get that now. But then <laughs> Mufasa, I think, asks him, how, how were you feeling or what were you thinking in that moment? And, and he says, basically, like, because you were there, I was okay. And then Mufasa says the coolest line. He says, nobody messes with your dad. And then he says, come here, you. And then this happens. Next image. There's this tender moment, right? Oof. I'm getting, oh gosh, I'm getting emotional, right? Why? 
Because Mufasa has leveraged all of his strength and might on behalf of his rebellion. And instead of giving him a long lecture and saying, how dare you? He knows Simba's learned his lesson because when you've been rescued from that kind of peril, you don't need a lecture. Instead, what you need is an embrace that you truly are safe, that you're okay. And that there's a hope of a future of the relationship that clearly you're the one who's broken. And so Mufasa has this tender moment where he says, no one messes with your dad. He says, come here, you. And he locks his son up tight in a hug. And it's surprising because we think that kings should be frustrated with rebellious young princes. And we think kings should walk away. And we think kings with deep commanding voices would lecture. And instead, Mufasa embraces Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of, check it out, good news. You know this is where the New Testament gets the idea of the gospel? Right? We use this word all, oh, they're not up here. There are these beautiful reads. Usually it's right there, right? Our first core identity, gospel-centered. That's where this comes from. This text, boom. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, gospel. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. This is who God actually is. Not your mental construct of, well, if there's a God, he's like this. If there's ultimate authority, it acts like this when I rebel. It acts like this when I defy it. This, this, this is, behold your God. This is him. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Behold, he is mighty. The arm of the Lord in the Old Testament is what swipes away the enemies of God. It's what handles the Egyptians. Behold, it's coming, the arm of the Lord. By the way, I have to say this. In... Where is it? Verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Those are saying very similar things. You remember what, uh, what Tyler preached? Isaiah 6 where the glory of the Lord shows up to Isaiah in the temple. Do you remember what Isaiah's reaction was? What was his reaction? Where's Ty? Is he here this morning? His reaction is, I'm undone. Remember, he sees the hem of the garment of God, and it says that his glory fills the temple, and Isaiah's immediate reaction is, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is not going to go well for me. This promise here, that the glory of God shall be revealed and all flesh should see it is not one that you're like, hooray, can't wait for that. Look at Isaiah. This is definitely picking up on Isaiah 6 and saying, one day that will happen for everybody. One day the arm of the Lord shall come and he shall come with might. But check out the last verse. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. What? He will gather the lambs in his arms. What? He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Again, there's this flip. He comes with might. His glory will be revealed. 
It'll be really scary and overwhelming. No, 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 no. You know what he's doing? He's extending his arm to bring in his own. Are you seeing it? You're seeing how much of this passage is saying, don't mess with God. Don't mess with God. He is greater and mightier than anything in this world. And yet if you are his, all of that strength and might will be leveraged for embrace rather than judgment, for safety, for nearness, for intimacy, for gentleness. I want to end by, by looking at the last few verses of this very chapter. Check this out. Verse 20, uh, 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Okay, these are very, <laughs> frankly, these are very reasonable questions to be asking given the people's circumstances. My way is hidden from God. He doesn't see us anymore. Clearly, he's given up on us. Clearly, he's gone. Uh, this, this phrase, my right is disregarded by my God, is really this idea of vindication. It's God doesn't care that, to vindicate me. I've stayed faithful my whole life, and yet God clearly won't show up to show anyone around me that I'm not crazy for having been faithful. Ever felt this? My way is hidden from God. God doesn't care about vindicating me. You showed your hands for, for evangelism difficulty. Show your hands for this. Anybody ever felt this? Anybody ever asked these kind of questions? Right? I've asked these kind of questions the last two years. God, where were you? What gives? Is it, are we really hidden from you here? Here's what, um, here's what, here's, here's, well, Mike, put up that slide. The people are experiencing a kind of despairing faith. And I use both of those intentionally. I think there's faith among the people. I think that there is a sense of like, yeah, I still believe maybe in God. But here's what they're actually experiencing. They're asking the question, Maybe God is non-existent, right? If there is a God, then this wouldn't have happened. This couldn't have happened. Ever been there? God is limited. There's, there's no way God can bring good from this. I know that there's certain promises, but this one, there's no way. I can't see it. I can't imagine it. There's no way that he could bring good from this. God is maybe elsewhere, uninterested, in my specific search. Sure, God is active in the world, but he doesn't care about what, what is going on specifically with me. Or maybe the situation is just too big. My circumstances are too complex. There's too much going on here. God, God can't rearrange the pieces. This, this is where the people are at. Guys, this is Advent faith. <laughs> this is faith in the dark. There can be faith in the dark. And by the way, faith can sound like this. You know how I know? These are practically lifted from the Psalms. <laughs> Almost every line of that has, has some sort of, you know, corollary in the Psalms. This can be what faith sounds like. Check out what our passage says. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
Sometimes what we need most in the midst of despairing faith is not new information. We simply need to be reminded of things we already know. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> if God is everlasting, then he's, then, then he's still operative. If God created the universe by the word of his power, then there's no, if nothingness was not so complex to bring everything out of, <laughs> your complexity is not too much for him to bring something out of. And what it's saying is God's nearness in the midst of your despairing faith can help you put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And that's his promise. And I know that Pam loves that. Um, <laughs> one foot in front of the other. Um, let me just put this up. Mike, put that next slide up. If there's a command here, it's verse 31, they who wait for the Lord. And I think that this is, first of all, first of all, don't look at that. Look at me for a second. First of all, notice the prerequisite for God's uh, sustaining of you in the midst of despairing faith. You know the one thing that's required? Look at just the way the passage is written. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This is one of those things we've got to get more used to. The prerequisite for God's strength is for us to finally say, I'm out. We greet each other in a place like New Jersey, normally with how are you? And we all say, I'm exhausted. And yet, there's still a sense in which in saying I'm exhausted and in how we function day in and day out, we say, but I got it. I got it. I'll be able to handle it. I'll push through. I'm making it work, right? And what this says is the prerequisite is to say I'm completely out. I'm completely done, God. And I think what this looks like, I think the, one, the most radical way to do this as a, as a 21st century New Jersey person is to stop is to stop long enough to embrace this reality that I'm out and then to declare it to God, like to actually do that. Because I think until we stop, we are saying with our activity, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Just a little bit more. I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And I think that that's why so many of us, and I hear this all around the church, so many of us, Jalen preached it last week, so many of us are starting to realize, man, it's silence and solitude, <laughs> That feels like what God is saying, yeah, yeah, you got to come over here. You got to stop long enough to say, I'm fainting, God. I'm out. And, and I'm stopping because I can't do anything else. This is it. I'm out. It says, boom, that's it. That's it. That's the posture. That's where you get strength. And we say, yeah, but can I do it because I heard that in the sermon and now I believe it? And I'm like, God, give strength. And so let's keep running. Maybe the strength will come, right? It's like, that's not what it says. It says when we're done and we stop and we reset, right? Stop, reset. Pause long enough to actually declare to God, God, I can't. 
But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be reared. They shall walk and not faint. What's weird about that? By the way, I had this on my Bible growing up. I had a little Bible cover and everything in my room that was remotely Christian was Isaiah 40, 31. Anybody join me in that? Am I the only one? Thank you so much, Nicole. That encouraged me. Okay, because um, I loved it. Eagles. Mm, mm, mm. You notice that, the, that it's weird that it goes the wrong direction. You'll soar, and then you'll run, and then you'll walk. It's the opposite of what I want to do. I want to be like, first I walk in faith, then I run in faith, and then I soar <laughs> on wings like eagles, right? What's going on here? I don't know. It's just interesting. And almost every commentator is like, this is interesting. And if there's anything that this seems to indicate, it's that what's normal in faith is walking. God wants to teach us how to walk. Faith ain't soaring all the time. Faith ain't running all the time. Faith is walking most of the time. And what this is saying is that God wants to teach us how to walk. And sometimes first he's got to let us soar. First, we've got to have that moment where the first time maybe you stop long enough this week and you get in some silence, you come out of that silence, you go, woo-hoo-hoo, that felt really good. That pastor Scott might be onto something, right? Like, that felt amazing. And then you run for a little while. And then God says, I know, it's not going to be like this always. Life's going to get hard and complicated, and you're going to get inconsistent. I just want to teach you how to walk. Let's walk together. The image that's being gotten at here, and this, this hurt my little nine-year-old heart, is it's not really they shall mount up with wings like eagles. It's really they shall spread their wings like eagles, which is still cool, but it's almost certainly the image that's being gotten at is, um, I learned this this week, is, again, I did my homework, is eagles molt. Do you know what molting is? I didn't know what molting was. Um, molting is when you lose all your feathers um, in order to, to grow. You all knew this? And, and, then, you, and then you grow new ones. So here's, a, here's probably the type of eagle that they were talking about back then. Look at my guy. Ugh. He's in, this is, this is an advent eagle to me. <laughs> he's shot, right? He's shot. He looks, he looks like he's been through it. He's living on sticks. He's like in a cave somewhere. But he has to go through this to become this. He has to go through a season where he's <laughs> stripped down to the nuts and bolts where he can't fly, where God's got to do a new thing in him, in the dark, on sticks, in the mud. And yet there's hope beyond that because God's doing a new thing. Let me give you four rock solid things that I think waiting on the Lord means according to this passage, according to really the entire scriptures. Mike, go back to that slide if you would. Waiting on the Lord um, means, by the way, and I have bad news, it means waiting. It means that so much of faith just feels like waiting, right? Um, you get into certain seasons of life, and sometimes we don't even know what we're waiting for. We just feel like we're waiting. And then other seasons, it feels like stuff is happening, and it feels like we're walking in whatever, um, in, our, in our gifts and in purpose and all that. And then there's some that are just like, I don't even know what I'm waiting for. Here, here's, here's what you can wait on as a Christian, and here's the active kind of waiting I think God wants you to do. First, to believe that God will have the final word. There is an ultimate hope that we have in waiting, which is trouble won't last always. That one day the four corners of this earth will be completely renewed by God and he will have the final say. And that day is coming. And I think 10,000 years from now, we will live 
retrospectively looking at our lives and saying, I should have lived with so much more hope. (laughs) I should have lived so much more expectantly because this is so good. And yeah, life on earth was really hard, but man, I just didn't, I didn't know. I just didn't realize what, what I had in front of me, right? And I think God gives us permission to say, activate some of that now. You ever gotten on the other season, uh, the other side of a season of life, and you look back with more information that you, than you had then, and you say, oh, I would have done it so different. Can you imagine how we will look back on our earthly existence when 10,000 years from now, we're on a renewed heavens and earth with everyone who was ever loved in Jesus <laughs> and we're worshiping him face to face? You think that'll give us some perspective? Can we pull some of that into here and now? Uh, God is with us, especially in suffering to believe that and to know that. And that that always doesn't feel like God is with us. Right? You ever been with a, with a kid who's really upset and they're thrashing and all those things? You think that they have an awareness of how close and tender you are to them in that moment? No way. In fact, they might turn on you and say, why didn't you? And you're like, I was, <laughs> I was the one whose you know, chest you were, you were putting your fists into. Doesn't always feel that way. Doesn't always come how, how we wish it did. And I think in eternity, we'll realize that has far more to do with us than with him, right? But to believe that and say, God, I really believe that you're with me in this. That God will use your hardship for his good. That that's like a real hope, that that's a promise. That if he doesn't, he's being unfaithful to his promises. And, and that's the kind of thing we can, we can bank on. God, if you don't bring good from this, then you're unfaithful to your promises and the whole thing falls apart. But I can tell you, this is where we also need each other because some of you are on the other side of profound hardship and you go, I'm seeing the good. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it like, oh, I'm so glad that that thing happened. But God is being faithful to weave the worst things in my life into something where where actually goodness is found. We need to hear that from each other. And the last thing is the most simple, but I think it's one that we forget. That because of who God is, that there's beauty, goodness, grace in our future. That we will yet experience good in this life. That God is storing up all the good in the universe in heaven, but he's not hoarding it. He sends it down to us and gives us these moments that we're to just sit and go, this is really good. This is a really good moment and points to that there's a really good God. And it might be fleeting and it might all fall apart tomorrow, but there's good. And if there's good today, then it means that there's good out in front of me. That's what, that's what like rock solid, serious, logical hope and yet emotionally engaged hope in God looks like. This is what it looks like to wait on the Lord, is we bank on those four things. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall spread out those wings, even after molting like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this hope. God, we thank you that, um, that you give us hope in the midst of life's hardest moments. God, I know that there are those in this very room who are experiencing um, overwhelming sadness, loss, grief, confusion. I know that there's some in this room who are walking right now in the consequences of their own sin and rebellion. God, I pray that today, to their utter shock, that they would hear this word as a word to them. Comfort, comfort, you say to them. And so, God, I pray that as we come to this table, that that comfort would be um, experienced, like actualized in the bread and the wine as we receive your grace into our very being, Lord.
And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How we do communion here at